Welcome to the August 11th, 2022 meeting of the Science Fiction Club. Hello, and we have more people here than we did last month, so we can have a meeting this month. All right. Um, does anybody want to go first? Is there a, you know, is there a yearning in someone's heart to go can first? I be, can I be heard? You yep. can be heard. Yes, you can. Welcome right. back. I'll go first. Thank you. All right. Okay, uh, it's a book that I read uh, about a, maybe a month or two ago. So it's called Hella by, let me just check the name of the author. My memory is so bad, I have to consult my Victor Reader here. Just a second. Even though they're rooted, they're, they're called in trees. One they second. Phrase, really trees. Even though they're rooted, online bookshelves, airplane mode, on, NLS Bard, nine, books, two, Hella. By David Gerald. Okay, it's by David Gerald. Oh, he's an old, uh, he's a classic. Uh, and this this is a very interesting book. It takes place on a planet called Hela. And it, it has to do with a, a colony that has been established. Several hundred people have gone from Earth because apparently the conditions on Earth are getting too difficult to survive, you know, getting jobs with overcrowding and everything. So these people came out to settle this strange planet. And the book is narrated by a young boy who has some strange gifts. He has some sort of implant in his brain that he allows him to have knowledge beyond his years. And um, basically the book deals with the interactions between the colonists. Um, they're describing the planet, you know, traveling from from a, a winter colony to a summer, or in this case, from a summer colony to a winter colony and describing the fauna and flora, which are overly sized fauna, like huge dinosaurs and things. And there's rivalry among the colonists. There's one guy, who, one um, leader who wants to take over from the rest. And so basically you have the interactions between the colonists. A new ship comes with new, more settlers. There's a struggle for control. And at the end, the good guys, if you will, the, 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 the narrator and his mother and brother and um, a captain who apparently turns out to be his, uh, the lover of his mother, they went out over the bad guys and uh, they're able to continue the colony. So basically, <clears throat> the good things about the book are the description of the planet, the, the, the narration of the, of the main character, this young boy and um, basically the interactions that go on. So I, I found it to be an interesting book. It's not too long, and um, I would recommend it. I don't think I've read anything by him, but I've heard his name many times, you know, in the classic, uh, you know, when people talk about the golden age or soon after that. I don't remember if it was 50s or 60s. You know, it might have been into the 70s. I don't remember, but he's definitely... David Gerald was the one who wrote that book that I recommended to Michelle called The Man Who Folded Himself. That's right. Yes. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten the name of the author. Yeah. That was, yeah, that's, he, he was, uh, I don't know if he's still, uh, you know, around, but you know, he, he wrote many years ago. Um, so he was very popular from what I've heard. So that's great. You know, so now people have two books of his to look at. I don't know if the man who folded him says that on uh, Bard or not. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Well, then they have both of those. To look both up. Yeah, I got mine from Bard. On Bard. Okay. Um, well, Roger, you, you, you often go first. You want to go second this time? Please. May as well. I'm this saving time. Liz for... Okay. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, I brought a world-ending book myself. This is definitely an apocalyptic one. Oh, okay. Uh, it is Flood by Stephen Baxter. Ah, uh, yes. And I've read some of his work, not that one. Okay. He, it starts out with these four people, actually five, who are being held hostage by... Um, a religious fanatic group. Um, there were five at first, but right at the beginning of the book, basically they're being rescued 
and one of their number gets shot and killed during the rescue. So there's only four of them. And um, they have been held hostage for five years and they make a promise to each other that for the rest of their lives, they're going to look out for each other. And well, they became, they become the main characters and it follows them and their progeny throughout the rest of the story, but they've been held hostage for five years and they have not had access to news. They uh, know nothing about going, what's going on in the world, except that they have noticed that while they were being held hostage, there's been a lot of rain. So they're rescued. And it turns out that in the last five years, sea level has written, risen by as much as a meter. And they're kind of surprised about this. They figure that it's due to global warming, but um, it wasn't supposed to rise that much for uh, till the end of the century. But in any case, the sea level is rising and coastal cities are getting flooded. And in fact, um, Stephen Baxter concentrates a lot of the first part of the story in describing the disasters on London. London is being flooded and people are being drowned and there's sewage floating around in the streets and stuff like that. And I figured that um, he was probably doing that because he was an English author and he was probably writing about the places he knew. But as the story goes on, he does expand himself around the world. But in any case, by reading the synopsis and some of the reviews on Goodreads, I knew that this was going to get a lot worse than what global warming would cause. I mean, uh, the scientists say that if the Antarctic completely melts and the Greenland ice sheet completely melts, then of course coastal cities will be flooded and river basins like the Mississippi River Basin will become an, um, a shallow sea and that also goes for the Indus and the Mekong River and some other river basins around the world. But that's about as bad as it gets. But like I said, I learned from reading these reviews in the synopsis that in this story it's going to get a lot worse than that. And I was saying, oh, come on. Stephen Baxter should know better than that. I mean, he is actually a working scientist. Um, he really ought to know that uh, that water has got to be coming from somewhere if he's going to have more water than that. Well, as a matter of fact, in the story, um, about a third of the way through, we figure out where the extra water is coming from. And by the way, those ice caps have not quite even melted yet, and everything's being flooded. There is a certain scientist who thinks she knows where the extra water is coming from, and in fact, she takes a trip in a bathyscaphe down to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge to take a look, and it's confirmed. Now, let's go to some real science here. There are... Ge these geologists who study the interior of the earth, the way they do it is they have, um, um, uh, uh, darn, the name escapes me right now, seismograph. Why did seismograph slip my mind? They have seismographs all over the earth, and every time there is an earthquake, or for that matter, an atomic explosion or any other big explosion or what have you, these seismographs will measure uh, how long it takes the shock waves to make their way through the earth, where they are deflected, what their wavelengths will turn out to be, and all of that. And that way they can infer the structure and constitution of the interior of the earth. And it so happens <clears throat> that they have found some anomalies in the mantle. The mantle pretty much consists of, uh, well, you know, magma. It, when it comes up to the surface, it's called lava. It's liquid rock. But 
there are certain anomalies within all that magma that um, reflect these shock waves in certain ways that there are scientists who have theorized that there are actually bodies of water inside the mantle, ocean-sized bodies of water. And I'm thinking that must be pretty darn hot water, but uh, it couldn't exactly boil away because where where would it go? But in any case, um, it seems that at least one or more of these bodies of water has migrated to right under the mid-ocean ridges where magma is coming up all the time anyway, and that's responsible for continental drift. But suddenly, all this water that has been trapped inside the Earth since the formation of the Earth is now coming up, and it's like, well, like I said, each one is the size of an ocean, and there's more than one there. So... This flood is going to get a lot, a lot worse. In any case, as the story goes on, there are plots and subplots generally having to do with interpersonal relationships. One of the hostages that was released in the beginning had had a baby who was conceived by rape. One of the hostage takers raped her and she had a baby, but she was very attached to her baby and she wanted, uh, she a long time was spent with her trying to get reunited with her baby. Um, and by the way, the baby ends up growing up and becoming a significant character herself. But as time goes on, people um, are heading for high land. Um, high land has become really expensive because it's at a premium because everybody wants to go there now. Um, the coasts are being completely inundated. People start living on rafts and stuff like that. Um, eventually, Washington, D.C., the seat of the U.S. government, has, <clears throat> has to move to Denver, Colorado when Washington gets inundated. Denver, Colorado is pretty high um, ground. But by the way, Utah is too, so a lot of people want to get into Utah, but Utah has practically declared its independence and set up patrols and such to keep people out. As it turns out in this story, um, the Mormons basically take over and they won't allow anybody into Utah unless they convert to Mormonism. And... Then as things progress, it follows for a while a group of about a 1,000 people who are migrating on foot from Colorado down towards Central America with their intention being to get to the Andes Mountains, which is really very high ground. Um, Once they get to the Panama Isthmus, they found out that the Isthmus is completely flooded and in fact, the North and South America are, have, are now separated for the first time in several million years. And there are some people living in the area who are very suspicious of these migrants. But after it's explained that all they want to do, all they want is passage so they can reach the Andes Mountains, the people in the area who had met them with shotguns and stuff said, well, okay, we'll ferry you across but there'll be a price. What it comes down to is they want the women. (laughs) But then it switches to other parts of the world. As the flooding gets worse and worse, uh, the Tibetan plateau becomes prime real estate. And there's all sorts of rafts and ships and boats showing up on Tibet wanting to get in. And the Tibetans are limiting the number of people who can be allowed in, too, because they don't have the resources to hold so many people. And uh, <clears throat> the, well, what it comes down to, I don't think this will be too much of a spoiler. At the very end 
of the book. There are people living on big, huge rafts. By the way, they have crops planted on these rafts, uh, but the people left are eating a lot of seafood and such. But at the very end, there is a 12-year-old boy who, by the way, is the son of that baby um, who started out the story, who was conceived in rape and so on, but he is looking at the ship he is on is among a whole bunch of other ships and rafts, and they're looking at something everybody is making a big deal out of, and he doesn't see what the big deal is. It's a rock sticking up out of the um, water. And he says, well, he's seen rocks sticking up out of the water before, so he doesn't see why they're making such a big deal of it. He's never been on one of these rocks. After all, you can't go anywhere on them. But for some reason, all the adults think this is a big deal, and this particular rock has a flag on top of it. And then he happens to overhear some of the adults talking about it. And this rock that they're looking at with a flag on top of it, they're calling it um, um, uh, that. Well, it's one of the Himalaya mountains. <laughs> so that's how deep the water is getting. Now, I said I don't think that's too much of a spoiler because something else is coming along. I have not read this, but there is a sequel. And as I understand about the sequel is that the remnants of humanity, the survivors, are going to leave Earth in spaceships and head for a more habitable planet. Now, here I am again saying to myself, Stephen Baxter ought to know better than that. For one thing, this is very, very near future. In fact, the opening of the story, you know, they're still worried about um, climate change. Is it supposed to raise the sea level for a meter till the end of the century? And I suppose that means the end of the 21st century. But um, they certainly don't have spaceships that can engage in interstellar travel. And even with the Earth completely covered with water, within the solar system, it would still be the most habitable planet in the solar system. So, first of all, where are they going? And second, this flood has destroyed all the infrastructure. How are they going to build themselves a spaceship? Well, earlier in this book, I had said that Stephen, Stephen Baxter really ought to know better than thinking that global warming is going to cause this much flooding. But it turns out that he was uh, had in mind some real science, so I suppose maybe he can save the day and make the sequel credible, but I haven't read that one yet. So in any case, this is an apocalyptic novel, and yes, it is interesting to read about how everybody's fighting for high land and um, all the conflicts and so on going on. So if it sounds good to you, give it a try. Did you get it from Bard or from uh, Bookshare? Is that from Bard or is that from Bookshare? Wait a wait a minute. Uh, that that was that's on Bard. Oh, okay. Yeah, there, Bard has a lot of his books. Um, I don't know. I've, there's many there that I haven't read. Um, I've read some of them. He actually did a couple collaborations with Arthur C. Clarke. Um, I can't remember the names of them now. I read them like decades ago. Um, but anyhow, yeah, he is uh, very popular. He's still working, as far as I know. Um, the Flood, Stephen Baxter. Mm-hmm. Now, that that is actually not that new. I, if he if there's a sequel, well, he's got all he's got a different things going on so his sequels aren't always you know immediate um so we'll just have to wait and see if it comes out 
Um, now we have three people next. Who wants to go next? Anyone want to go next? I'll go next. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, this is a book of short stories. It's called The End. The End and Other Beginnings. And it's mm. by Veronica Roth. Mm. And it was okay. Um, there was one story about um, people who, when they're dying, have some sort of special power to connect with somebody of their choice to relive a life experience. And one of the better stories was about aliens who are living on Earth, and they all wear human-shaped suits so that they can fit in. But there's some aliens who actually take over humans, and they're called leeches. And this story is about a leech bounty hunter who goes after the aliens who are actually mm -hmm. killing people to take over their bodies. And there's a story about um, people who have perfect pitch and can... I guess they kind of get hired. I might be the wrong word, but people who are dying can use these people to sing their death song or their life story. Mm. And that was okay. It was interesting and different. And then there's three stories about, and I couldn't even tell if it was a far future world or even another planet. And those stories all seem to be more fantasy than SF. So all in all, this was okay. The best story was about the alien leech bounty hunter. It might be mm -hmm. worth reading the book just for that. It's only six hours anyway. So, so that's okay. my short, very short book review. Very short. I have perfect pitch. Oh, well, there you go. You can be a Harkinger then. Okay. And maybe I have some employment in my future. <laughs> I, I, I don't, didn't get the impression it paid too well. Oh, darn. It was supposed yeah. to be charitable. <laughs> Oh, I see. I would have wanted a cut of the will. <laughs> there I'm you go. Death songs. I want part of the will. Okay. Uh, Liz, I have to call on you because uh, you haven't been here for a while and we've missed you. Aw, <laughs> thanks. You, you always have good books to review. Uh, Fun. And you enjoy them so much, even though they're so, you know, down. <laughs> you make them so happy. Compared Why, thank to what, you. Compared to what's in the news today, she's oh my goodness. The dystopian oh my goodness. doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> no. no, it doesn't. I mean, yeah. Let's end this and start over again, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. it makes me think. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But you have something. I know you do. Well, I actually have two books. Um, okay. The first is, is Artemis by um, um, Weir, Andy Weir. And I oh. read that because I really enjoyed The Martian and I loved the Hail Mary project. Yep. Everybody um, who reads it likes it. Yeah. I it was, really I liked it. Also. It was excellent. Excellent. Ziggy was absolutely my favorite character, you know. <laughs> um, but honestly, Artemis, I think, fell short of the mark um, because it was it was. It wasn't um, what well, was set on, you know, the moon, okay, um, and the city is Artemis. Um, Earth has deteriorated to the point of being nothing more than, you know, it's like the people who are living in Artemis fear that if they do something wrong and they get deported, they'll get be deported back to Earth. I mean, that's, that's so it's like a penal colony, sort of. Um, the main character is Jasmine, and that's the story centers around her. She is um, a smuggler, and just uh, kind of likable, but, you know, she deals in the darker sides of everything. You know, uh, she drinks too much and carouses too much and, you know, smuggles. And um, her father is a devout Muslim. And so she loves her father, but, you know, kind of rails against his teachings and he just is nothing but a nice man and kind of keeps hoping that she'll kind of straighten herself out. Um, but she sets up a situation you know, she gets involved in a situation that has potential to end, you know, to, to cause great harm, if not the destruction of Artemis. And when she realizes that, then she becomes um, instrumental in, remedying that situation and then saves the day and you know it was it was an okay story but i i it, it didn't take me 
Um, it it could have, you know, I don't know. It just didn't. It just it just wasn't exciting to me. I didn't. It didn't um, feel like at the same. I mean, I liked the. Martian well, I was going to say it didn't float your boat, but given Roger's review, I had <laughs> My second boat thoughts. Sank. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but. It was like an okay story in and of itself, but if you were hoping for like something akin to the Hail Mary project or even the Martian, which I know some people didn't care for the Martian, I did because I just found it fascinating his creativity about how to survive on this, you know, planet waiting for his people to come find him and pick him up. You know, there was just something there about it that was interesting. This, this to me was just like, eh, you know. So anyway. Um, that's my review of that one. I think that that was his second book, um, Artemis. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next book is The Firefly Code. And that is by, oh, shoot, hold on, just a second. I read it a couple months ago, and I've read several stories since then. So, okay, The Firefly Code is by, um, Sherry, you read that. You I did read it. that, but I. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Megan Blakemore and Sammy uh, Fraser. Okay, um, and it, uh, okay, so it's about Maury, um, a girl, and three of her friends primarily. They're all twelve, thirteen-ish, and they're living in a futuristic, you know, uh, planned community um, in I think it's in, near Boston, um, and so it's a little bit just dy- dy- dystopian because. Um, you know, they stay within their community because it gets dangerous when they go outside of the community and they don't really know what's out there and stuff. But it centers around, um, basically, it's a coming of age kind of thing. Um, the four of them are talking about what legacies they're going to choose. And in, in, their, in their community, when you turn 13, you, you identify which part of your, I mean, this is after testing and stuff, to you know aptitude testing so you get to choose which which aptitude you want enhanced and then you undergo procedures um to enhance that but in the process it calms down other things in you um and so you know there's that dilemma is do i want to be enhanced or do i want to just be natural um and sometimes there's some pretty bad consequences to the process of, of you know, in, uh, enhancing your legacy. Um, and a new girl comes, moves into the neighborhood and um, they find out that she is completely constructed. She's, she's not enhanced. She's completely constructed. And how the community receives her. Um, some, of the, some of the people totally reject her. Um, Maury. And her friends try to incorporate her into their group. Um, but it, it is really inter- interesting how uh, they, even in this planned community, how they handle differences. Um, and I, I enjoyed the story. There is a sequel to it called The Daybreak Code, which I have not read yet. Um, but I intend to do that just to find out how it turns out. Because at the end of the first one, they... Um, because they they plan to destroy the new girl um there's plans to destroy her because of the way she was conceived you know and built and stuff um and the friends are going to save her by leaving the community sneaking her outside of the community and that's where the book ends so um it's written for again young uh young like you know eight uh, grades four through seven but I actually did not find, I didn't feel like I was reading something um, juvenile. It was, it was, it was about young kids. So I think that that's why they would get you know, aim it toward that group. Um, but I just felt like there were a lot of interesting lessons about growing up. Um, you know, if I could choose a gift, you know, what gift would I choose and what would I be willing to give up to get it? And it was, it was just very interesting. Yep. Yes, that so that's does it. sound interesting. I think Lucy read that a while, quite a while ago. It's been quite a while. I think she. Yeah, it's it, an older book. I don't book. know if she knows about the sequel. I'll have to try. Have to yeah, the Daybreak Code that. is what it is. She might want to read it. And they are both on Bard. Oh, great. Okay. Well, Michelle. Yes, yes. How are you doing? Good, good. 
Um, I, I agree with you, Liz, about Artemis. I read that story probably a couple of years ago, and I, I, I thought it was okay. It was kind of a little more action-y than I thought it was going to be, and not as good. As, I, I never read Project Hail Mary, but I read The Martian. I thought The Pro- Martian was much more interesting, like you said, trying to you know think the way he was thinking, being creative, figuring out ways to survive was very interesting, actually. Um, so I read a short story, which was written in 1909. And um, the story was written by E.M. Foster, who's not an author that I typically think of as science fiction. Um, it's called The Machine Stops. And, That's um, a famous story. Yeah. So I'm going to read you. This is something that was written by a journalist in um, the BBC in 2020. And he wrote that The Machine Stops is not simply prescient. It is jaw-dropping, uh, gobsmacking, breathtakingly accurate, li- accurate literary description of lockdown in 2020. And it was, it was very interesting because, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, imagine reading a short story that was written today and then 100 years from now, how accurate would it really be? This was kind of accurate <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, basically, it has... Um, everybody is living below the surface of the earth and everybody is for whatever reason, they don't really explain it is, is living alone in a single room. And in the single room, the machine, you know, can basically answer all of your needs. So if you need food or you need entertainment or whatever you need, you press buttons and you know, you, you have your needs satisfied and people communicate. This was fascinating to me. People communicate by, video conferencing and by telephone um, that you could, but you can see the person's image on the screen and the story centers on a mother Vashti and her son Kunu, and they live uh, different parts of the planet. And this is how they're communicating with each other. Um, And, you know, it kind of describes in the beginning, how are these people living And Vashti seems pretty happy with her life. I mean, she's basically giving lectures and listening to lectures. It really reminded me a lot of the early days of the pandemic where people went to all kinds of programs over Zoom and try to entertain themselves and keep themselves busy and whatever. Um, But her son is, 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 is a little more rebellious. He's a little unhappy and he wants her to come to see, to see him. So she goes by airship. Um, and on the airship, there's a stewardess and the stewardess, unlike everybody else, kind of like touches people and is a little bit more intimate with people. And it kind of throws Vashti off because she's not, you know, she's not used to this. Everybody lives so isolated and she goes and sees her son. And he basically says, you know, they're going to make me homeless. And what they mean by homeless is they're basically throwing them out of, out of their room and they're going to have to go to the surface of the earth without a respirator and they're going to die. Um, and he's very concerned about this. And it, it sort of, you know, goes, goes on from there. I don't want to give the whole story away because it's, you know, it's a short story. So right. there's not that much going on, but it was very interesting reading the story because I, I was really fascinated. How did he think of video conferencing? Um, and, you know, why would he put them, underneath the earth in isolated rooms. And the, the most heartbreaking part of the story was they talk about childbirth because, uh, you know, the women have children, but they basically take the children away immediately and they assess the children. And if the children look like they're too rugged and too, you know, sort of hardy, they kill them because they don't want people who are very athletic. They want people that are just sort of content to sit and talk and lecture and listen to lectures and whatever. So it was very imaginative. I never really thought of Ian Foster as a science fiction writer. Um, and I don't know, maybe he's written other science fiction novels, but uh, uh, stories, but it was, it was really fascinating. I, I, well, I really enjoyed the story. Great. Yeah. That was before the days when science fiction became a separate genre. A lot of mainstream writers wrote science fiction of, uh, William Conrad wrote a book, uh, a novel called The Inheritors, which I haven't read yet, but I have it on my rail display to read it. It's about 
um, a, a successor species to humanity. Um, what was his name? Samuel Butler wrote a story about intelligent machines. And I'm trying to think of the name of it. And I'll think of it after the meeting's over, of course. Um, he was a famous author and thinker back in the, in the Victorian era who wrote, who speculated about machines that would do all the work and, you know, robots and stuff like that. He didn't call them that exactly, but, and I wrote a novel about some uh, who would, that had that in it. I don't think it was the central focus, but it was definitely speculative. And uh, yeah, uh, then uh, in the thirties, science fiction sort of got, you know, genreized by Hugo Gernsback and then uh, broke off into a separate literature and now mainstream people sneer at it. They didn't used to, you know, back in the hundred years ago or 150 years ago, but now they, yeah, Rudyard Kipling wrote uh, what, The Flying Machine, I think it was called, uh, before, well before Flying Machines. Um, there, there's more, uh, there's probably more examples that I haven't thought of, but a lot of mainstream writers wrote what would we call, we'd call now science fiction. You know what that one kind of reminds me of, though? It is a story by Isaac Asimov, and I think it's been ages since I've read this, so I hope I'm matching the right title to the story, but I think it was The Naked Sun, in which these people live separately. They, they colonized another planet where they have these estates, and everybody is miles away from each other, but they interact with each other in um, 3D conference calls and stuff like that. But to be with a person in person in the same room, we have a big taboo against. Yeah, that, that was uh, Solaria. That was the name of the planet. That was the name. Do I have the Do I have the title? Yep, of the that was it. Yep. Yeah, that okay. was it. Yeah, that's and what that would, one reminded me of. <laughs> and they would have like hollow conferences, and they'd match up the ends of the table, so it looked like um, indistinguishable from you actually being in the same room, but you weren't. You couldn't meet other people. It was they were just aghast, you know, at the thought of it. Mm. That was it. Yeah, yeah. The machine stops. Yeah, I have to get this. Um, I have to read this William Conrad story at some point. This uh, really does sound interesting. I, I would like to read it too. It, Michelle, does it ever? I maybe I missed it, but do they talk about why people are living underground or no? It just that's the way it is. It, it seemed like you had to read between the lines, but it seemed like. To, to me, and I guess people could read it differently, was that a bunch of humans sort of took over the planet, created this super machine, and and they sort of almost treat it like a, a religious experience in a way. Because later on in the story, they talk about when the machine, well, I don't want to give it away in case you decide to read it, but something happens with the machine and, and you see, you know, the, the world going back to to it a different way um it is if anybody's interested it is contained um in a in the collection of stories by ian foster on bard um so it it is available on bard i'm sure it's available on bookshare yeah it's forester isn't it Forster. yeah it's foster or forester i'm sorry i don't know if it's pronounced it's not foster it's force it's f-o-r-s-t-e-r yeah, and that's it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So just so people know when they're. Yeah. Because Bard's yeah, pretty persnickety. Um, Bookshare yeah. is more forgiving. If you make a typo or something, it'll try to find, you know, it'll give you authors that aren't necessarily a match. Mm-hmm. But but Bard is very picky. If you misspell an author's name, it'll show nothing. Yes. A lot that's of times. Um, yeah. I, so, I just typed in F-O-R-S-T-E-R and yep, story. And that's it, it came up. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Well, is there anyone I've missed? I don't think so. Is there just yourself? Myself? Oh my! Well, I'm. Uh, I read a science fiction novel that uh, I read before, but it's been a few decades, and I decided to read it again. And uh, it's uh, the the Dosadi experiment by Frank Herbert. I read it back in 77. I think it came out in 77 in novel form, but it was serialized in Galaxy when I read it. And I think it was the same year. 
uh, might have been a little bit earlier, but it's read by a different uh, reader. Uh, it was read in 2003 by J.P. Linton. And I enjoyed it, but I see things in it now that I didn't see when I first read it. And so that was interesting. And but it's still kind of hard to follow sometimes. Um, but it's about this um, organization. And this is actually a sequel. There's a there's a uh, uh, the first book was called Whipping Star. And I read that long ago and I don't remember what it was about exactly. Um, that, when I read it, it was uh, back when it was um, recording for the blind. And I just I couldn't connect with it too well. It might have been partly the narration. Or it might have been partly the story. Um, but this is a sequel, and it involves a guy named George X. McKee, who works for an organization called the Bureau of Sabotage, which um, I just have a bug about this. So I'm going to just... Um, the original narrator, Steve Grad, pronounced it because Herbert abu abbreviates it as BUSAB, Bureau of Sabotage. But for some unknown reason, J.P. Linton pronounces it BUSAB. Like he doesn't pay attention. He's not paying attention to what it stands for. So anyway, that just and every time I every time I heard it, it bugged me. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys get these things or not. Yeah. Sometimes it just, it just <clears throat> yeah. jars. Yeah. Why do you say that? Um, anyway. Um, and it's an organization that watches the, it, it, the universe is uh, called the consentiency. And it's, uh, there are various alien species, some of them very alien. Um, and they have um, these frog like people called the Gawachan or Gawachan, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And the story centers around them because they were the chief uh, designers of this experiment on this planet called Dosadi, where it's a very inhospitable planet and people are crowded into a very small area. And the experiment is about what this overcrowding can produce. Um, I have my doubts as to what whether it would produce what Frank Herbert thinks it would produce, but, um, and it's, and it's, it's um, comp uh, contained within this barrier among the aliens that are in this consentiency are these creatures called Calibans and Calibans, and they manifest as stars, but they're much more than stars and people don't really understand them. Uh, I mean, obviously, it would be pretty hard to understand uh, the psychology or relate very well to a being that has, you know, a stellar manifestation. Um, though it wouldn't be the first time uh, Olaf Stapleton wrote about stars that were sentient in, that had some kind of sentience in um, Star Maker. But anyway, um, and so this Dosadi, people can't leave. They, they are... Um, there's a method of transportation created by these aliens that will allow you to just step from one world to another uh, instantly. Uh, but this barrier prevents uh, anybody from coming or leaving. Um, but word has gotten out about this experiment. And um, so they bring in this guy, George X McKee, saboteur extraordinary and, his job, well, the, the Bureau of Sabotage is watches over the consentiency to make sure that there are, you know, people do not uh, become overly violent or, you know, it watches social movements to make sure that things are um, uh, not, don't get extreme. And it watches government to make sure that the government doesn't become overly tyrannical or corrupt. And so anyway, uh, they bring him in to try to solve the problem and to figure out, because if, if he doesn't find a way to save the situation, then they're going to destroy the entire planet. And of course, if word got out about that, then the consentiency could shatter because then, of course, all the, you know, the races would start, you know, going after the Gawachin and so on and. 
So the plot, the, the viewpoint switches mainly between George X. McKee and this woman on Dosati named Kyla Jedrick, who is extremely intelligent, who has been selectively bred by her ancestors uh, to try to find a way to escape from Dosati. Because uh, obviously they know that they're uh, in prison on this planet. I mean, their evolutionary history doesn't go back that far. It just ends, you know, I mean, there's, it would be pretty hard to conceal the fact that they're prisoners on this planet. So, um, so she is taking over the, they live in a city uh, of 800 square miles with about 90 million people in it. Um, and then there's the rim around, they, they're in a canyon or a valley, and there's a rim around the out uh, the edge of the city where there are a lot more people crowded, and their life there is nasty, brutish, and short, to borrow a phrase. Uh, well, it's it's pretty nasty and brutish and short for a lot of people in the city, but it's even worse out on the rim. And so she is, um, her mission is to try to escape from and find a way to get out of off the planet and so but but the plot is she waits for she finally finds out that someone is coming well there have been people who come in from outside they can be recognized pretty easily because the people of Dasadi, at least a lot of them who live in the city are more observant they're sharper they're more survival oriented they're um you know a little smarter did i say that anyway um, and they can recognize people from the outside pretty quickly. Um, but so, but she finds out about this McKee who's coming to observe Dosadi and, and learn what's going on. And, and so she meets up with him and teaches him, you know, how things work and some of the necessities of the planet and so on. And, um, uh, I'm not sure how much I should give away, but. Um, there is, you know, the question now from the previous book, Whipping Star, which I don't remember very well, McKee solved a problem for these Calibans. So they owe him something. So he is able to communicate. Well, um, I guess maybe some other people are, we don't know, but at least we aren't told, but, um, he's able to communicate with especially one of them. Um, and so she tells him that he can leave, he can't leave Dosati once he goes there, unless he leaves in a different body. So he doesn't make the connection at first. I'm, spo I'm spoiling it, but I, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess, I mean, you're going to find out pretty, you know, it's not a major plot. Well, it is, but, um, but anyway, it's about finding new bodies for people and the, you know, the aristocrats and the consentiency and their shadow ruling government type thing. And and um, I don't know, my my sense of disbelief is not as strong or my suspension of disbelief is not as strong this time as it was when I was only 16 or 17 when I read it. Um, I mean, there probably must be easier ways of getting new bodies for people than you know creating all this controversy and imprisoning you know millions of people on a planet and risking you know the word getting out especially if you annihilate the entire place um and but what struck me about the story is there are a lot of parallels with the dune books um we have again we have a character who's been bred uh, selectively bred and very intelligent. She doesn't see the future the way Paul in Dune did, but she runs simulations of people very detailed so she can, and so she is able to predict their actions to a great degree, just as he was. Uh, another th a similarity is this um, in Dosati, it was extreme overcrowding. On, on Dune, it was extreme inhospitable landscape, the desert, which made people stronger and faster and whatever. And that's what Paul used to take over the galaxy. 
Uh, that's what these Gawachin fear if Dosadi inhabitants get out into the galaxy. Um, so, and there are just uh, similarities like that. Uh, he talks a lot about governments and power. And he also seems to believe that one way of making people loyal to you is to control the supply of whatever drug they might be addicted to. He used that in Dune also. Now, the Atreides didn't use it, but the villains, the Harkonnens used it, and the people on Dosadi use it. But I've never heard of an, a society on Earth that ever used that. It doesn't seem like a very plausible method of you know, keeping your advisors loyal to you, uh, especially since they might be impaired. And you really don't want impaired advisors, you know, at least I wouldn't think so. And as I said, I, I don't know where he got that idea, but it never seemed very plausible. Um, anyhow, um, but um, the Dosadi do get out. McKee solves the issue, but he solves it in favor of the Dosadi. And uh, there's a lot of talk of this alien law. These frog people, these Gawachin have this strange legal system, which Herbert, I think, tries to explain, but I don't really follow it because a lot of the ideas are inverted. Like if you're declared innocent, then you can be killed. And I don't know how guilty people are supposed to be punished. I, I couldn't follow it. Um, so I, I don't think it was his best work. I mean, it was interesting to some extent, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I did the first time. But I think, um, you know, I've read a lot more and I've, I understand his work a lot better than I used to. And I understand and the themes, you know, the, and I've read other books by him since then. And a lot of the same things keep cropping up, you know, the same ideas in different guises, you know. And I, I mean, I see a lot more of that than I did when I first read it. Um, so anyhow, that's the Dosati experiment. It's on Bard. It's on Bookshare. Um, so that's my book for this month. Anybody still here? Yes, we're still here. Oh, yep. okay. Oh, everybody was so quiet. We're just being so polite. You put you yeah. to sleep. <laughs> no, I was thinking how it's kind of sad when you really liked a book and you read it later in life and it turns out not to be as good as you, when you no, liked it when you were young. It, it wasn't. I mean, I just, and I still can't follow it all. I mean, I don't know how this trial, there's a trial at the end because the Dosati people get out and the Gawachin are, you know, the people who are responsible because they're still around. I mean, they keep switching these bodies, mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of them are still around. Uh, I mean, 20 generations later or whatever it is. Wow. Uh, so what is that? 500 years or something? 600? Yeah, I forget what a generation like is exactly. 25, 30 years. Uh -huh. And so, but, but I don't understand, you know, there's a lot of, you know, con talk of conspiracies and, you know, McKee and Jedrick, you know, they fall in love and work together and they're able to switch bodies back and forth, you know, which people aren't normally able to do, but they've got special gifts. I mean, obviously she had special gifts and McKee is, you know, he's one of their best. And so he's got some, you know, talents apparently. And so they work together to manipulate the system and, and it's all, you know, kind of hard to follow really near the end because he doesn't, I don't think he does a great job of explaining, you know, a lot of it's kind of vaguely outlined. And I guess you're supposed to fill in the gaps or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Dune was a lot better uh, than the Dosati experiment. Hmm. Um, so well, that's my book for this month. Anyway. Um, anyone have any anything else before we go? Nope. I'm hoping to find something good for next month. It just seems like all the new SF that shows up on Bard is young adult, which can be good. You just never know what you're going to get when you. I know, but it seems right. like the selecting librarian up there has mm -hmm. the thing in his, her head, unless it's a group. I they think got the thing in their head that science fiction is for kids and, yeah. you know. I think it's what's and, being published. That's mostly the science fiction that's being published these days. Yeah, that uh, could be, yeah. But I yeah. find. could be, but. But, you know, I, mean, I find that most of these so-called young adult novels about 
really about the only difference I can see between them and an adult novel is that all the main characters are teenagers. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. About it. So really, yeah. I, I don't have a problem reading a young adult novel because it's just like an adult novel to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like no, that. No, I don't. I don't. Tell. It's the subject that really, you know, matters to me. But mm-hmm. um, so, um, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to read next month. I've got a copy of The City and the Stars here um, that I haven't read for decades. Oh, either. I have that on my list. Um, too. So yeah. I like that's one of my all time favorite books. And I really think oh. I will like that one just as much. And I was oh. the book not to read. sure i just read recently the shape of things to come by hg wells oh Oh. not to read huh well that was a famous book in its own right many years ago think think of this it was published in 1935 and it purported to give uh, the history of the world up until the year 2106 Mm. and it's just like reading a very very dry history textbook written by an author who was highly opinionated and his opinions are probably not going to come close to agreeing with yours. And there are no characters. There mm-hmm. is no plot. It's mm-hmm. just like oh. a book and it is damn boring. <laughs> I think I tried reading that too. And I had well, the same you know, reaction. Yeah. Uh, 1935. That is just a couple years before, um, or was it? Um, or a couple years before or after Olaf Stapleton's Last and First Men, which is the same format. There's no characters. There's no plot. It's just a history of the next two billion years. Yeah. It doesn't go to twenty one oh six. It goes to two billion and oh six. But it goes through all these multi- different species of men, as he calls them. They're men back then. Mm-hmm. It was just men, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, on Earth and then on Venus um, and there's a Martian invasion. And then, you know, there's a bunch of people on Venus and then they go to Saturn because the sun um, cools or warms up or something. And and uh, then they have to go out further out into the solar system and they get really advanced. Um, it, it's pretty interesting, really. It's except well the first part uh, even the even the guy who wrote the introduction said that people might want to skip the first part of it because it talks about world history for the next few generations and it's pretty it's really boring mm. uh but after that when it starts getting into the aliens you know the humans who are different um you know have different sensory capabilities and you know different psychologies and stuff it's really speculative and interesting but uh, there is no plot, uh, just like Star Maker. There's no plot in that, um, but that's acknowledged as a, another classic. It's it's it goes out in into the universe eventually. It's a fascinating book. I mean, but um, yeah, nobody writes books like that anymore. I guess nobody would publish it. Of course, people can publish their own books now. Of course, but um, but it's uh, it was really interesting. But uh, yeah, twenty one oh six just isn't far enough out. Well, you know. well, the thing is that was published in 1935, just mm-hmm. very shortly before H.G. Wells died, maybe about five years before he died or so. And he had become famous enough a writer by then. He was basically a bestseller. He was kind of like a Stephen King. Yeah. He had gotten to the point where he could publish his laundry list and it would become a bestseller. <laughs> yeah, kind of like Stephen oh. King now or so anything, you know. anything he submitted for publication would be published. But I tell you, yeah. that was not anywhere close to being his best work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even yeah, think I, I finished it. it and it was short and I still don't think I finished it. I, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Now, oh, so you you tried it. Huh? Yeah, I tried it. I mm. might have finished. I don't remember. I just remember now that you're describing it, it being really boring and being surprised. Did you try that book? Um, shoot, what was it? The new space? What was it? The space opera Renaissance? Did I did. 66-hour book? And, you know, I still have it on my stream. Every once in a uh-huh. while, I'll read a story from it. And, mm-hmm. and usually, yeah. you know, in between other books. Yeah, there's some good stories mixed in there. They're not mm-hmm. all good, but there are right. some good ones in there. Peter F. Hamilton is a pretty good one in there. Yeah, yeah, you can't um, go wrong with him. Yeah. 
So yeah, I'm, I got to check Amazon to see what he's put out lately. He's due for something. I mean, the last thing he wrote was, I don't know, a year and a half or two years ago, I think. Yeah, it's been a while. Anyhow. Well, guys, the next meeting of the Science Fiction Club will be on Thursday, September 8th, 2022. 